So here we are again, and we're going to talk about Jonah a little more uh, into the actual book. Last time, it was more about the man, Jonah. Who is he? What's he up to? What was happening? Today, we're going to take a look at the message of the book. So I want to begin with a question which leads into thinking about where does this book fit in the Bible? Where does it fit in our thinking? The question is, why is the book of Jonah included among the minor prophets? I don't know if you think about stuff like that, but why is it included among the book of the minor prophets? Because that's where you find it, you know, among the 12 minor prophets. And you think, oh, okay, Jonah, it's a book of prophecy. Yeah. However, it really isn't a record of a prophet's proclamations, but more of a story about a prophet. Some of the story elements do become signs, and they are types of events that take place in the life of Jesus, but they're story elements, right? They're not proclamations from the prophet. So let's take a look at Jonah, and uh, last time we dealt mostly with verse 1. Let's, let's move on. We'll deal with verse 2 this time. <laughs> so it says here, actually, I'll, I'll back up. I'll read verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah's told to go and preach, and it says, call out against it. So it's not good stuff. And he's told to go to this people who live in the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. If you drop down to chapter 3 and take a look at verse 4, we're going to skip all the stuff about Jonah running away. We kind of talked about that a little bit before. This is your third sermon on Jonah. So we kind of know the story. We know the drift of it. If you look at verse 4, though, it says Jonah began. So here he is. He's in Nineveh. He's gone. He's going to do his duty. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So when you think about it, that's the entirety of his proclamation. That's it. That's all there is. That's all he really says, you know, the words of the prophet. That, that's prophecy. The rest of it's just a story about Jonah. That, that's all there is. His preaching is summed up in a single sentence. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's Nineveh. And from this very, very small, scanty information, we can kind of infer that Jonah's message was Nineveh was full of wickedness and therefore will be destroyed. You've got 40 more days. Okay, that's kind of adding a little bit. I'm embellishing with that. I'm making it a longer sentence. It's still not very much, but I think that's the gist of it. So there is a teensy bit of prophetic proclamation from Jonah here, but mostly, as I've said, the book is a story about him, a guy, and what happens to him. And like the stories that, that Jesus used so often, the story of Jonah is meant to make us wonder. It's meant to stir up questions and to make intuitive connections that are hard to put into words. Jesus used stories a lot, and he didn't always use them to make things clear. 
you know, sometimes people think, oh, he was the great communicator and he was trying to like clarify it. That's not exactly why he used stories. Well, he didn't describe the attributes of the kingdom in, in theological or scientific or legal or philosophic terms. He would tell a story about mustard seeds or uh, shopping for pearls or digging up hidden treasure. This is the sort of thing he would do. And then what happens, if you, if, you, if you have a mind for it, and if you're thinking about it, these stories then trigger all kinds of thoughts and associations that uh, would be kind of hard to put into words. They'd kind of sound, it'd probably sound kind of dull and boring if you tried to explain it all. But when you use this story technique, the mind is able to make all these connections. And very often, and you see this a lot with, with the stories that Jesus used, and I think it's there in Jonah, very often biblical stories contain a paradox, a paradox, which is meant to provoke deeper insight, deeper thinking. So a paradox, I found this picture, this is one of these impossible objects. I don't know if you've ever heard of impossible objects. It's like one of those, you know the drawings of the stairs that never end, you know, this is the sort of thing. And this is an impossible object. Uh, Penrose's impossible triangle is what this is called. So what I'd like to do today, what I'd like to do today is consider what the biblical story of Jonah is trying to get us to think about. And there's a paradox. I think there's a paradox for us to consider. What's a paradox? All right, I put the definition up there. You probably aren't listening to me. You're reading the, you're reading the slide. That's one of the dangers of slides. Uh, but a paradox is a logically self-contradictory statement or a statement that runs contrary to expectations. That's a paradox. And the use of a paradox is that it can be used to expose invalid arguments or errors in assumptions. That's one thing. And if you took a class in logic in, in university or maybe even high school, that's the sort of thing they would throw at you, a paradox. And it's there to kind of poke holes at your thinking. And it promotes critical thinking. So back to the question that I asked a little earlier about placement. Why place the book of Jonah in a collection of scrolls dedicated to the minor prophets? When the scriptures were preserved, and that task of preserving the uh, revelations of God was given to the people of Israel and later carried on by the Jews, they wrote them all on scrolls, okay? Animal skins, they rolled up, they didn't have paper. And they would have collections of scrolls, like a group of scrolls, a group of scrolls. And so there was a collection, uh, it was one scroll. They could fit all 12 of the minor prophets on one scroll, okay? So that's how the stuff was grouped together, all right? Jonah was put in there on that, that scroll. So that's a little bit of the, the background why it's included or how it's included, probably a better way of saying it. So Jonah's there and it's included with the 12 minor prophets. Why, though? I mean, if you think about it, if you're familiar with the flow of Scripture, if you've ever read, anyone ever read through the book of Kings? Anyone? Uh, okay, got some reading to do. 
Uh, either that or you need to raise your hands higher. <laughs> so it would have fit in really nice in the Book of Kings, right? You know, you've got the stories of Elisha and Elijah and all their comings and goings and their prophets, right? It would have fit in really well there because it's more of a story of exploits. Would have fit in pretty good, I think, in 2 Kings. You could have also, I think, very logically put it in with the writings. It, it fits in very nicely with Esther, Job, and stories like that, which are about the trials and tribulations of a person, right? Rather than a book of proclamations and oracles and prophecies. So why put it in there? What's, is there meaning to that? Well, it's not explicit. It's not like the Bible has a little appendix that says the reason why it's put here is Acts. It's something to think about, okay? So like I was saying, it's kind of a, a question. It makes you think more deeply. I put it to you that the account that we have of Jonah sticks out as a sore thumb, you know, sticks out as very unique among the 12 minor prophets. And putting Jonah among the 12 minor prophets asks us to consider this book in relation to the other 11 that it's there with and their message, because it's, it's a little different. The story of Jonah, I put it to you, questions overly simplistic ideas some people had back in the, back in the day when Jonah was about, and even today. Some of the things that we think about prophecy kind of need a little bit of work. Placement among the uh, 12 minor prophets offers a thoughtful antidote, I put it to you, a thoughtful antidote to some false assumptions. And that could be people who lived back in, you know, five or 600 BC, maybe in the first century AD, when Jesus was, was doing his uh, ministry, even 2024. What might some of those ideas be? Okay. Got some fancy words for you. <laughs> fancy, fancy words. Particularism. I don't know if anyone's ever heard that, but uh, that's the idea that God only cares about the people of Israel. That's actually one of the criticisms that is kind of raised against Scripture by outsiders. God only seems to care about the people of Israel. And in our day, we might apply it to the church of God. Well, God doesn't really care about anybody but the church. That's something that I think we'll see Jonah sort of addresses. And another is fatalism. And I've thought a lot about this because we live in troubled times, you know, and when, when you're in troubled times, people start thinking about the end and prophecy and everything unfolding. And, you know, if you're really, if you're always swimming in waters of prophecy, you know, like a frog, I think it has the potential to make us kind of fatalistic. Oh, well, it's just going to happen. Or pessimistic, you know, nothing good's going to happen. It's all going to go horribly wrong. Those can mess with your mind and they can make you kind of depressed, anxious, and afraid. And I think it's something that Jonah speaks to as well. We don't want to be pessimistic about the future. We want to be realistic, but we don't want to be pessimistic. So those are the ideas that I think are worth our attention. Let's talk about the chosen people and the rest. The chosen people and the rest. Now, casual readers. Okay, so this is going to get back into that 
a question that I had, you know, why is Jonah included among the, the 12 minor prophets with all, you know, if you've read the 12 minor prophets, it, it can be kind of grim, right? It can be very grim. They had a lot of stuff. We were, we're going through the book of Lamentations. Uh, we just had a setup on the book of Lamentations last week. And, you know, there's grim stuff happening because, you know, God's got to deal with sin in the world, right? And casual readers of the Minor Prophets, you know, there is some good stuff in there. Good things are going to happen, but they only seem to happen to the chosen people, right? You know, God's going to do this for Israel. He's going to do this for Judah. He's going to do it for the chosen people. And the rest, boom. So you can walk away from the Minor Prophets kind of thinking, well, God, God really only cares about the chosen people, the chosen people. And other races and other nations are mentioned but only considered in their relation to Israel. And, and there's something, there's definitely a lot to that. I mean, this is God's nation that he chooses to reveal himself through, but you read about countries or nations like Edom or Moab or Egypt or Babylon, and, and they all get scolded and they all get punished because they're, they have bad relationships with Israel. So it becomes, can become very Israel-focused. And, you can think, well, God has just picked these people out and that's all he really cares about and that's all he's dealing with. Yet when you look at Jonah and you think about what God did, he sends Jonah to Nineveh. He sends him to an alien nation. This is not Israel. He sends him to an alien nation. And that didn't happen much. I mean, the prophets are pretty much camped out in Israel. You know, if they've got something to say about a foreign nation, it's usually bad, <laughs> and it's usually from within Israel. But here, Jonah is sent to go to this alien nation, which would be Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. Why? Why are, is he sent? He's sent so that they might repent. He's sent so that they might repent. And when you think about it, it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Its wickedness has come up before me. Their attitudes and their interactions with Israel is not part of the equation. That's not what God is concerned with. He's concerned with them, their sins before me. Assyria's negative interaction with Israel that's off in the future. It's not going to happen for over another hundred years. This is way before the stuff that you read about the Assyrians taking over northern Israel, right? This is way before that. They haven't had any negative interactions with Israel. This is about them and their sins. And the charge against Nineveh is for their own wickedness. Not for how they've treated Israel. And if you think about it, Nineveh isn't even criticized for idolatry. That's not what God's bad at. They're accused of wickedness, violence. And you, you know, we see that, we'll get to that in chapter 3, where that becomes an you know, expansion on what is wickedness? What is this wickedness? Violence, which is why I picked this crazy picture. Violence, that's a picture of Assyrians being violent to a bunch of people. That's the sort of stuff that God saw in their society and he didn't like it. And it's the sort of stuff, I put it to you, that everybody ought to be able to figure out by looking at the reality of the created world. This is bad behavior. 
You know, you might say, oh, the survival of the fittest. Human beings obviously need to cooperate to survive in this world. But let's take a look at uh, this, this concept of being able to discern what is right and wrong just by basically looking at the way things are. Go to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And I'm going to read through 18 through 20. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So everybody. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And here's the really important part. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So he's talking about all people, everybody. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That's usually talked about as natural law theory. The idea that you can discern right and wrong just by looking at reality. Reality. And if you think about that, I mean, in today's context, okay, because, you know, everything's always changing. We're always fighting different battles and having different arguments. But today, we have this raging argument about gender identity, right? Okay, this is a perfect example of what we're reading about here. We have this raging argument about gender identity. And uh, some of the statements that you hear people making, they're the opposite of the reality that you see around you. And just by looking at the created world, you can see, well, that's, that's not how it is. That isn't the way it really is. It requires ignoring the reality of how we've been created. It's just a, for instance, you know, DNA, body structure, millions of years of supposed evolution. These things, they're pretty potent arguments. Um, you know, and the result is great confusion and, and sadly, a lot of life-changing harm. But the, the gist of what I'm getting at here is not to talk about that particular issue. Maybe it'll stay with us, maybe it'll come and go like a fad, I just don't know. But the point is this, that some matters are obvious and should not require special revelation from God. And this is what, what Paul is saying in Romans. Some things are just like, they're, they're there in front of you. you. Everybody can figure this stuff out. So sending Jonah to Nineveh shows that God has a claim on the moral behavior of all people. All people, not just the chosen and not just the enlightened, not just those who've entered into a covenant with him. So every last man, woman, and child, I mean, we all owe our existence to God and we must answer to him for what we do. I mean, every person will have to claim the sacrifice of Christ to cover their sins. Everybody's going to have to do that. And every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess before God. But that, you know, that, that kind of only makes sense when you have a good understanding of the resurrection of the rest of the dead, the great white throne judgment, all that good stuff, right? Which you have been chosen and blessed to understand. So you've got a perspective on that. We're no different from the rest. We're all going to be judged. 
you have some special revelations. You even know some things about right and wrong that are revealed and can't be understood. But a lot of things can be, okay? A lot of things can be. And you're greatly blessed to have understanding. So there's a lot of blessing to that. But Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, is the God of everything. And he's God of everyone. So, you know, he's chosen to make himself known through a chosen people, a subset of people, and that was Israel. Now it's the church. But he's the God of everything and everyone. And all people are beholden to him for what they do, whether they're enlightened or not. Okay? So God hasn't given a covenant to Assyria. He hasn't given them the Ten Commandments. But he still holds them accountable for things they should, they should just know. You should just know this. Now, where the line is between you know, what, is, what is known through creation, what is known through revelation, is not not something I'm going to get into right now. But the point is, everybody's on the hook with God. So, let's talk about the unchosen in a different way. What about God's compassion for the unchosen? What happens is, Jonah goes to Nineveh, and because of Jonah's preaching, what happens? Well, they repent. Uh, let's just read that in Jonah 3, verses 4 through 10. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and took off his royal robes and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. In other words, fast. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth and let everyone call urgently upon God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So Jonah's preaching is, you know, it's short, <laughs> but it's very successful. I mean, it's a synopsis, obviously. But it's successful, and the people repent. And then what happens, and this is you know, a big part of the story of Jonah. I mean, most people think about the, the fish. But the biggest part of Jonah's story is Jonah's reaction to this. Because what happens is Jonah gets angry, and he gets confused, and he gets depressed over Nineveh, Nineveh's repentance. So let's take a look at that in uh, Jonah 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, But to Jonah, this all seemed very wrong. And he became angry. I don't know, have you ever been angry with God? When things just don't seem fair, they don't seem right? 
And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. <sighs> now, Lord, just take away my life for it's better for me to die than to live. Wow, I mean, he's obviously really worked up about this. He's angry, he's confused, he's depressed. I mean, he knows Assyria will be used by God to punish Israel. I talked about that in the last message when, you know, he would have had knowledge of what Hosea was saying and the predictions that were there for Assyria and so forth. So he knew that, and so he probably hoped they wouldn't repent, right? He wanted them to be destroyed because if they were destroyed, then they wouldn't be used to punish Israel. I put it to you, he's also confused. He's also confused. Why will God show compassion? Why will God act with a slowness to anger, loving kindness, abounding in love to Assyria? What? Why? Why be, why be that way to these people? They're not the chosen people. You're dealing with us. And on the flip side, so there's abounding love going out to Assyria, but at the same time, he's hearing Hosea, he's hearing the other prophets who are working at the same time, which I talked about in the last message, condemning Israel, saying, Israel, you're going to be punished. It's gonna, this, is, this is bad. So why, is, why, God, are you showing love towards Assyria, but the chosen people, you're so harsh with us? I mean, because if you think about it, by comparison, the wickedness of a nation like Assyria was way worse than anything Israel was into. I think looking at the nations around them and so forth, Israel was probably better. They had higher standards, they were better. You know, you might look at your own country and say, well, you know, we got our problems, but we're better than them. You might say it about yourself, you know, I have my problems, but I'm better than, than, than him. So why is God acting this way? Because by comparison, the, the wickedness of those people is way worse than anything we've done. You know, what's happening is Jonah's assumptions and expectations about how God operates and how the covenant works, even his own personal role as a prophet, it's all falling apart all falling apart. This isn't the way things are supposed to go. And so it's very disorienting to him. And he says, I would rather die. It's, this is so messed up. I don't get it. I don't understand. I would rather die. He's angry with the way God's working things out, how God is dispensing justice, confused, depressed. And he says, I would rather die. I just, I can't go on. The world doesn't make sense. And, you know, sometimes the world doesn't make sense. Plenty of times the world doesn't make sense. And you can get very depressed. You can get very um, bent out of shape about it. You can get confused. But you, I think, need to have the, the God perspective. And God will give his perspective. Drop down to Jonah 4, verses 4 through 11. And uh, God replies, okay, is it, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? You know, he's basically questioning. This guy's he's revealing himself in a way to God 
It's very, very open. And God says, your feelings and your emotions, do they even make sense? And reading on, it says, Jonah had gone out and he sat down at a place east of the city and he made himself a shelter and said, and uh, sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah, gave him shade to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said, and here's the God perspective, is it right for you to be angry about the plan? What is, he said, I'm angry and I wish I were dead. And then God said, okay, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. And it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. So look, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. So that's the God perspective. God tells him, look, this city of Nineveh, which you went to, is a city of 120,000 beautiful, intelligent beings who are the work of my hands. That's what we're talking about, Jonah. They're not part of the covenant, but this is how I see them. And when you think about the book as a whole, there's a very strong emphasis in the book of Jonah on God as the creator. You know, he, he rules the wind and the seas that threaten the boat that Jonah takes off in, right? He rules the great fish who saves Jonah from drowning. He creates that leafy vine gave Jonah shade and heat. But what about people? I mean, you know, <laughs> I think sometimes we look at the glory of creation and say, oh man, the sunset's great. But what about people? Oh, they're, they're a pain. Love that sunset though. What about people? God said, I think, I mean, I know I'm kind of putting I'm putting a lot on it here, but I think God's saying, I created Assyrians just like I created you. And we could say that about all different kinds of people in this world. I created them just like I created you. And I love them and I want good things for them, okay? And uh, right now, you, chosen person, Jonah, you, chosen people, church, right now they don't have the advantage of a covenant that spells out right and wrong for them. Like he said, these people, they don't know right from wrong. You know, they're just, no one spelled it out for them. There's certain things they can discern and understand and, you know, wickedness, but they don't really have the whole picture. They're not part of the covenant. Idolatry would be a great example. I don't think God really addresses idolatry because that's something that would have to be revealed to them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't get that unless God told them. Anyway. So he created them, he loves them, but he gave understanding to the chosen people. You have that understanding. And I gave you, Jonah, and your people understanding, why? And I think it applies to us. Why does God give understanding to the chosen? Why? 
It is so that you can share in the job of bringing enlightenment to other people. That was Israel's task. That's what they were there to do. God plunked them down in that spot right in the middle of all the highways and byways so that they would be very visible. And he said, I'm going to give you my laws. I'm going to show you all this great stuff. Why? Because I want other nations to look at you and I want them to see my way in action. And I want them to say, I want that for myself. That was their job. That was their commission. And, uh, you know, I think that you can see a lot of parallels with the commission of the church, but let's just stick with Israel for now. You know, your people, Israel, Jonah, have been given everything and you treat it like dirt. You treat it like dirt. And these people have been given nothing. All they got was a stern warning from me and they repented. So how should I judge Jonah? How should I deal with these people? You know, I think we can look at our own lives. We can look at ourselves as, as a church and we can say, you know, God's given us a lot and I hope we don't treat it like dirt. I think there's sometimes when we do. You know, it's no big deal. Eh, yeah, well, I've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> but God's given, uh, given his chosen people a lot. Let's go to uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. This is a good memory scripture. Peter's talking here about suffering, and he's talking to the church. And of course, you know, the church could look at the world around them at that time. This would be the first century or so. And they could say, you know, it's just not fair. It's not fair. Why are we suffering? We're the chosen people. This doesn't make any sense. I'm depressed. <laughs> you know, you, you might feel that way today. You might say, oh man, the church is just suffering. Things aren't going well. There's a lot of sickness. Oh, I'm depressed. But he says, look, okay, that's the context, suffering. But then he says, okay, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? So everybody's going to be judged. The Assyrians, they're going to be judged. They're going to be judged. They're going to be punished. I mean, you read the book of Nahum, there's another whole book where there's a lot of condemnation of Assyria for the stuff that they do to Israel. So yeah, they're, they're going to be judged. But before any of that, God would deal with the chosen, right? Who's going to deal with Israel? If you look at history, he dealt with Israel first. If there's problems, I'm going to deal with my people first. If you were... Um, I think, you know, if, if you were overseeing a group of uh, kids and they were acting badly and your kid was one of them, you'd probably start with your own kid just to set the right example, you know, to kind of say, well, I'm going to deal with everybody. So you'd probably, you know, get your own kid and address their bad behavior first in front of everybody else. That's kind of what God's doing. These are the chosen people. And, I, you know, Peter's basically saying the same thing applies to us, God's people. So there's, there's... There's suffering, there's punishment, there's discipline, and it can be, it can look unfair. I want blessings, you know? I want blessings. Because God's going to deal with the chosen first, okay? 
Israel had sinned, like I said, but I think looking at history, they were a lot less depraved, relatively speaking, than the nations around them. You know? and, and we could say that about ourselves. Maybe we say that about our own country. I don't know. But the real problem with Israel was that they knew better. That was the real problem that they had. They knew better, and therefore they were going to be judged differently. And you could say that about yourself. You could say that about our nation. Here's a nation that's full of Bibles. There's a Bible on every shelf, right? And just, well, yeah, but relatively speaking, we're not as bad as those people. We know better. Now, as God's people, as a church, we know better. And that changes a lot of things. That changes a lot of things. We know better. God gives his chosen people great blessings of his wisdom, which is codified in laws, experienced through his acts of loving kindness. So Israel couldn't plead ignorance. Assyria might have been able to on a number of things. But Israel couldn't plead ignorance, and neither can we. You and I know what God expects. And the fact that everybody else is, is doing something or not doing something or appears to be getting away with stuff doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter because they don't know any better. I mean, I know I talked about things that people should just be able to see, right? Natural law. But at the end there of Jonah, God basically says, these people really don't know right from wrong, left from right, up from down. They're a mess. Makes me think of when you know, Jesus was, was, was dying. What did he say about the people who were putting him to death? He said, Father, forgive them because they, they don't know what they're doing. It's wrong. They'll pay a penalty. There'll be judgment. They don't know what they're doing. So we don't want to be like Israel who were given so much and who consider God's favor towards them no big deal, who rejected it. And I think Jonah's story undermines false assumptions that the people had about what chosenness means. What does it mean to be chosen? Now, you, uh, uh, does chosen mean that you're chosen to ride high above everybody else? Or does it mean something different? I think it means something different. Chosenness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Chosenness is a calling that has obligations and duties and responsibilities and accountability. So, that's one. Let's talk about the other one, which is fatalism or determinism. This is a, another paradox that I think Jonah addresses. We understand that God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and we know that his will shall come to pass. Okay, we know that. How do we apply that understanding to prophecy? and human freedom to choose. It's a paradox, isn't it? Now Jonah had preached to the people of Nineveh, and he said, 40 days, 40 days before they would be overthrown. Um, the word overthrown is really interesting. Uh, the Hebrew word is havak, 
maybe think of havoc. I don't know if it's, if it's you know, derived from that, but havak is the word. And that takes us back to God's words and actions concerning the cities of the plain, which would be Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, which would be overthrown. So when, when Jonah's saying 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, I think fire, brimstone, you know, that kind of thing. Fire, brimstone. So Nineveh takes the threat seriously, as we've already covered, and they repent. And Jonah gets angry and he's confused and he vents to God, right? He vents. So in uh, Jonah 4 verse 5, it says, Jonah had gone out and he sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter and he sat in its shade and he waited to see what was going to happen to the city. What's going to happen to this city? Jonah presumably picked a place that was far enough away so that if fire and brimstone did rain down in the city, it wouldn't hit him. But he wants a ringside seat. He wants to see what's going to happen, right? That's kind of what's going on, right? Uh, you know, God had, had, through Jonah, had told the people of Nineveh 40 days until destruction, right? How could that prophecy not come to pass? That's what God said. It was a prophecy, right? How could it not come to pass? Well, let's ask a question to answer a question. What's the purpose of prophecy? What's the purpose of prophecy? I know I've covered this before. I think it's an important subject. So prophecy. Prophecy is one of the great proofs of the Bible as a revelation that comes to us from outside the purely physical world of cause and effect. That's what the Bible is all about. Okay, so we were talking about natural law and things you can see from creation. The Bible is about information that's coming in from outside. Go to Isaiah 46. Verses 8 through 11. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this and keep it, in, keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, I will do. So there's some prophecy coming at us from outside the physical world. Prophecies, there's more than one kind of prophecy in the Bible. There's prophecies that were made and fulfilled. We've gone through a few of those. Uh, I think they're really interesting. Prophecies that were made and fulfilled give us confidence in the truth and the reality of God's written word. It's a proof that God gives you. Look what I did. Can anyone else do that? So it's a proof of God's written word. So that's one of the purposes. What about the purpose of prophecies that have not yet come to pass? Clearly they can't serve as a proof of the Bible. No, of course not. The purpose of prophecies that have not yet come to pass is to give everyone fair warning and to encourage you to repent. Very simple message. Warning and repentance. 
So zoom out, zoom forward toward the prophecies of Revelation, right? When, when Christ pours out God's wrath um, on the nations. What he really wants is repentance. Not a light show. Repentance. Go to, uh, let's take a look at uh, Revelation 9, verse 20. Just some highlights here. These are the, the, the woes, the plagues, the stuff like that, the wrath of God being poured out on the nations. Revelation 9, verse 20 through 21, the rest of mankind who were uh, not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, magic arts, sexual immorality, or their thefts. So the plagues go forth, but there's a desire, obvious desire here for repentance, an implication. The door was open for repentance. All this stuff happened, and, and, and still they would not repent. What would have happened if they did? Uh, let's take a look at Revelation 16. Uh, verse 9 and 11 through 11. It says... Uh, these are the seven bowls of God's wrath. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So clearly what's happening there is there's a call to repentance that's going out, and the, the, the reason these things are happening is so that people might repent. What would have happened if they had repented? Most will not repent, but some will. Go back to Revelation 7, verse uh, 9. Revelation 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches. Now drop down to verse 13. Then one of the elders asked, these in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. So some repent. Even the church, if you take a look, I mean, this is our basic understanding of the Laodicean prophecy or letter to the church in Laodicea. Even the church is in part of the Great tribulation, why? So they might repent. It says to Laodicea, verse 14, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, uh, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words, I am the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. But I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need anything, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. I think we think that fire is tribulation. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you might see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent.
The flexibility of prophecy. This one is a, a progression of this idea because I've asked the question, what if they repented? You know, Assyria repented, right? What if the people in the end time repented? Prophecy hasn't happened yet, has it? If a prophecy goes out and accomplishes the goal of bringing about repentance, does it still have to come to pass? That's a paradox, isn't it? Does it still have to come to pass, or can it be modified? And I've spent years, and I think I'm not the only one, I've spent years looking into biblical prophecy, and I'm of the opinion that God reveals prophecy in a way that does not lock himself into a predetermined outcome that would result in moral injustice. And sometimes you look at prophecy, and, you, and, and I don't know if you've ever thought this, but I have, you, you, you get up to a point where you think you've got it all figured out, and then, and then something is like, oh, that doesn't work. Why can't, why can't prophecies be more direct and obvious, and like everybody can figure this out, but there's always a thing I mean, I don't know if there's other people who really get into studying prophecy, but that's kind of how prophecy works. You look at it, and it's like, ah, I thought I had it all figured out, and then something happens. It's like, ah, well, maybe it could be different, right? That's how prophecy really is. So let's think about something. Consider this. I mean, if we, as limited human beings, do not know the time or the date we don't know the time or the date, how would we even know if a prophecy had been modified or extended or postponed? We wouldn't even know, would we? Another paradox, eh? We wouldn't know. I've heard someone muse about that, that some, there have probably been times in the past when everything was lined up, it could have happened, but it didn't. I don't know, we don't know, I don't know. So could the people of the end time repent? Who knows? I don't know. What's important, what's important is that repentance is real and that it changes outcomes. And this gets back to the core paradox of fatalism. But repentance is real and it changes outcomes. And that's super important. And that's what you see in Jonah's story. Repentance changed everything. Repentance changed everything. You are not trapped in a predetermined reality where everything is decided, where you have no say, no choice, no way out. That is not the way things are. And if, you, you know, if we let ourselves get into that kind of thinking, we're wrong. Because repentance is real and we're not trapped. So in Jonah, let's go back to Jonah and take a look at chapter 3, verse 9. I think it's really interesting. The king, you know, he calls the whole nation to repentance and he says, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And then he says in verse 9, who knows? <laughs> He doesn't know if the repentance is going to make any difference. I mean, they deserve their punishment. 
He knew that. They deserved their punishment. But he says, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? God may relent and with, be, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. So the king realizes, you know, that God doesn't have to change his mind just because they repent. They deserve what they're threatened with. But who knows? And that little phrase, that little phrase, I think, would be extra painful to the chosen people since they ignored the same good advice. Go to Joel 2. Joel 2, just back a few pages earlier. Joel 2, verse 12 through 14. God speaks to Israel and says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and relents from sending calamity. Who knows? Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. They got the same advice. The chosen people got the same advice. Their problem was they didn't, they didn't go for it. They didn't repent. And they suffered. We don't want to be those. We don't want to be those people. You can be chosen. You can still suffer. If you don't repent. So, conclusion. Jonah's story... I put it to you, is there in the midst of the prophets to challenge some of the assumptions that, that we might get from reading the whole group of 12 prophets. Assumptions about what it means to be chosen, which is not a free ticket, but a responsibility. Assumptions about the power of human freedom within the framework of prophecy and the will of God. And... Repentance is real and it changes outcomes.